You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Jason Charns, who is using Ruby on Rails to build a course hosting platform called Podia. Jason, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about Podia? Sure. So uh, like you said, my name is Jason. I've been writing Ruby professionally since 2014. And since 2018, I've been with a company called Podia. Podia is a co- course hosting platform. So we are kind of an all-in-one stop for creators who want to sell digital downloads, online courses, things like that. Uh, we help them not only host those products, but build their own storefronts to actually sell to their customers. We have a team of currently seven plus a CTO, and we are onboarding two more developers uh, sometime in the next couple of weeks. And Podia has been around since around 2015. It started as a, a company actually called Coach, and they helped with like tutoring software. It was kind of geared more towards like kind of academic, like I think it's the one of the like college prep tests, like that kind of tutoring. And then it shifted uh, into actually serving creators, things like that. And in twenty December of 2017 became Podia. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, I'm also in the business of having, you know, selling courses and stuff like that. And I remember looking at your platform. I was so close to pulling the trigger on it, but I didn't in the end. But it had nothing to do with your platform. It's just I wanted to roll my own instead. But, sure. Yeah, it looked so good. Man, I, the pricing was so appetizing. Like, this is not like a business podcast, but I'm, I don't know how you guys do it at that price point. But it's awesome to see it's available. Yeah, it's it's very cool. Uh, I especially like the no fee part, like just pay monthly and sell as much as you want. It's cool. Right. So what was it like inheriting this code base? Like I would imagine, or I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong here. Did you end up rewriting the whole entire thing when you came on board or did you just inherit a Rails code base? I, when I joined, there was a CTO, he's still here, um, and two other product developers. And so I actually just joined the team and inherited their like kept working with their code base, adding to it. Yeah, we've been still working on the same monolith since it was Coach, still just building on it and continuing to work that way. Nice. So, I mean, you weren't there from ground zero when all this started, but is there a general sentence of why you guys are uh, sticking with Rails and picked Rails for it? We continue to use Rails because for our team, like our the size of our team, we're all kind of, I hate the term, but kind of, you know, generalists, we're... We touch all parts of the stack, and we all kind of believe that Ruby and Rails is a really good choice for us to, as a small team, deliver quickly and just keep building upon what we've been working on. Right. Yeah, no, it seems like a great fit for that type of application. But as for the app itself, I know before we hop on the call, you know, you kind of mentioned you can't talk about specific traffic numbers and stuff like that, but uh, safe to say Rails can scale, yes? Yes, Rails can scale. Uh, there, There are things that, you know we kind of learn along the way uh, when growing a product like that. Um, but Rails can scale. There's a lot of really good resources on scaling Rails. We, I personally, you know, I reference Nate Berkopec's, um Rail scaling blog articles and things like that. And yeah, we've been, we've been really happy with how we've been able to grow our Rails app. Yeah, that's awesome to hear. Now, as for this Rails app itself, do you want to maybe break down what components of Rails you're using to help build this? Like, are you using Action Cable and you know Active Storage and stuff like that, or no? Yeah, yeah, I'd be glad to. 
So at its core, I mean, it's the MVC uh, model view controller rail stack. So we have controllers, models, things like that. Uh, a couple years ago, we started adding interactors. So there's a gym called the Interactor Rails Gym, and it's kind of a service object gym. Um, we've been using that and pushing some things in the controller, some things in background jobs uh, into this kind of service object pattern. So if we have a background job we want to run, we can just call the service object. Been really happy with that. Uh, about a year and a half ago, we started really getting into Action Cable. We launched a messaging platform on our service, and we needed kind of real-time interactivity, so we just pulled in Action Cable and built on that. And recently, we've been using uh, a library called Stimulus Reflex, which is kind of like a live view for Phoenix. It allows you to build reactive Rails apps, as they call them. Um, and we've been using that mostly in our backend, our CMS, uh, for our creators. And yeah, we've had some some good success with that. Awesome. So I have not signed up for that platform as the actual creator side of things. What does that look like, that messaging platform behind the scenes? Is that like the public thing where someone on your team says like, hey, by the way, are you using some other competitor? Like, is it that live chat or something else? So it's something else. We, uh, we use Intercom for that. Um, but for this, what we do is we allow our creators to kind of have that same intercom experience, but for their creators on their storefronts, uh, we can like visitors and your customers when they're on your website, they have a little messaging bubble and they can have real time conversations with you. Very cool. And that's just keeping a persisted website connection open just due to working with stimulus reflex, right? Uh, so we're, we're actually not using reflex for that. Um, we're, this was before Reflex came into our picture, we uh, we built that using React and Action Cable. Oh, okay. So I know there's a lot of uh, uh, activity around the WebSockets, and now there's like, you know, Turbo Streams and everything like that. Did you end up going down the rabbit hole of trying to compare whether or not you should stick with your React setup or moving to Stimulus Reflex or maybe using Turbo Streams instead? Yeah, so we very much, we didn't take the decision uh, to use React. We didn't take that lightly because uh, we are very much like a, stick to the rails way air quotes. Um, so the only two places we're using react is in our messaging and in our site editor. Um, but other than that, we use stimulus reflex where appropriate, um, kind of some just small real time interactivity in the CMS. We have talked, uh, some very briefly about Hotwire. We went really, uh, heavy, in investing on stimulus reflex. So it would be a little difficult for us to go back and pull it out completely and move to something like Hotwire or like turbo streams. So for right now, it's kind of mostly stimulus reflex, the rails way and react if we, if we really need it. Okay. And overall with stimulus reflex, are you happy with uh, the way you need to write code to make that work? Yeah. Once you kind of, uh, well, I should say I'm a little biased. I wrote, I wrote a course on stimulus reflex, um, but once you kind of adapt to like the methodology of it, it works really well. There's a library called Cable Ready that kind of powers all of that, and it allows you using that using a WebSocket connection to send JavaScript events to the browser from Rails. And that's the thing that I probably use more than Stimulus Reflex itself um, because it just opens up a lot, a lot of opportunity. Like if I'm in a controller uh, in Rails and I want to like just send a JavaScript event to the browser. I can do that. 
I can I can even like console dot log uh, from the controller. It's I mean it's fun stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember actually watching a, a GoRails episode from Chris where he was demoing that. Where I think he just changed like a like a style sheet color, like a background color of, of a div. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. There's a uh, and they keep adding all kinds of they call them operations. So I mean, you can change inner HTML, outer HTML, all kinds of fun stuff. CSS, like you said. So are you able to give us maybe like a practical example of where you're using that in your code base, like for what uh, feature specifically? Sure. Yeah. We, I mean, we have several features using it. The first one is, um, so we allow customers, we allow our creators to send emails to their customers through our platform. And one of those things is, you might've heard the term like drip email, we call them campaigns. And so we have a campaign editor, basically like you'll add multiple emails or you might delete an email. Like you're, you're controlling all the emails for this campaign on one page. And historically we would use something like rails UJS where when you'd want to add new email, we would render that HTML, send it over with the JavaScript response and insert it into the DOM. So now what we're doing uh, with stimulus reflex is when you add new email, we're actually just having stimulus reflex re-render the little emails div and what it's doing is just adding that new email and re-rendering the HTML for us. And it, it feels pretty magical. Um, and yeah, it's, it's really neat. Uh, a couple other places we're using it whenever, uh, we have like filters and pagination, um, we're actually using a thing we built in house. Uh, one of our developers built and what it'll do is instead of reloading the page or using Ajax to do it, it will actually, like, if you click page two, will actually just re-render the div uh, that has all the results. And so it doesn't do a page reload. It doesn't do Ajax. It's just uh, a stimulus reflex action. Oh, nice. So this is all then backend. Like, if you were an instructor or creator of the course, you'd be interacting with this. Do you have any features on the front end? Like, if you were, I don't know, like a customer of your customer, like the person watching the course? We don't have any stimulus reflex there. Um, we... We kind of just stick to the Rails way as much as possible there. We have we still have a lot of UJS in the front end. I could see us m- maybe adopting some of that in the future. Um, I mean, it's, it's possible that we may even experiment with a hot wire in our storefront. But yeah, I'm just not sure the direction we're going to go there yet. Right, because I did take one course on Podia. I think it actually may have been one of Chris's course, like a Stripe Payments one. And I remember there being... I think there were comments below the video that gets loaded. Like maybe you can like push new comment updates, like GitHub issues or something like that. Yeah, that's using uh, mostly UJS still. Okay, so that takes care of you know the WebSocket side of things for now. Do, also, by the way, before we move on on that, do you actually run Action Cable as a separate process, or do you run it embedded into the web server? Uh, so that's a good question. We run it in the web server right now. We've looked at using something like AnyCable, um, which will use uh if you're not familiar it'll it's actually built on go Uh, they also have an erlang version and it runs as a whole separate process but currently we're still running it just kind of the rails default way okay yeah because i guess the alternative is like you run it as a separate service but then you kind of pay the penalty of maybe you need to spin up your whole stack again so it's a little bit more memory intensive it it is and it kind of from my understanding complicates deployments right because now you're running two versions of the app so we we haven't, I mean, we've, we've had a couple of challenges with Action Cable that we were able to just kind of solve on our own um, in terms of just monitoring connections, not just being like, everyone gets a connection. Um, and that's kind of helped us keep it under control. But yeah, any cable has been a thing we've discussed and I could see us moving to in the future. 
nice. And yeah, I think what was their real claim for any cable, right? It was like 10 times less memory usage and just can handle more concurrent connections, I guess. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal. Um, I think that came out of Evil Martians and everything they do, I'm just in love with. They are really, if you need something to like help you build an app in the Rails community, they've they've got a solution somewhere and that's one of them. Nice. Now, speaking of uh, Rails solutions here, do you want to maybe go over some of your gems in your gem file that really helped you build this app and like some of the features around what those gems allowed you to do? Yeah, so it, it would be tough for me to uh, go through all of them. Yeah, just a couple like good ones. A couple that we're using, we use workflow for state management. Uh, some of these like predate me and workflow is one of those. Um, but workflow is really powerful and something I use a lot. It allows us to not only define like a state of an object or a model, but to also give it actions to transition those states. And it allows you to kind of override like the transition methods to like hook in and do more functionality. And I've been really happy with that. I, I started using that on my side projects because I enjoy that. Let me see here, what else? What about for maybe um, for payments? Do you use both Stripe and PayPal or Braintree or Paddle or something else? Yeah, that's a good question. We use Stripe um, and we support PayPal uh, for our creators as well. I actually can't speak to the PayPal integration because our CTO is kind of the the mastermind behind that. But I've done a lot of work with our Stripe integrations. Um, we recently had, uh, I guess, a year and a half, a couple years ago, we had to upgrade for strong customer authentication, the ne- the EU regulation. That kind of changed how we use Stripe quite a bit because we migrated to payment intents. But was that a fun couple of weeks? Uh, a couple of months, yeah. Yeah, it was. I was the one on that project and. It was, it was, it was a thing. <laughs> uh, I'm glad, I'm glad, uh, I'm really glad we did it because it kind of helped us also get up to date on some of the newer Stripe APIs, which was cool. But yeah, like mental model of like, oh, wait a second. Like once a customer inserts their card, they may need to go to another screen and authenticate. And then that leaves this payment intent, this like pending state. And yeah, it was, it was a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I on your pricing tables, you kind of mentioned that you handle like the one-off payments, right? If someone should buy a course or whatever, but there was like a membership feature. Does that mean you're also doing monthly or annual payments for your customer customers? We are, yeah. So we support um, memberships and we do that. Uh, we only support Stripe for that. So actually your membership is hosted on your Stripe account. We just handle the, the legwork of, you know, creating the plans and subscribing your members, things like that. Nice. Now, are, were you able to reuse your own membership code for your own clients versus what your client clients also use? Like for, you know, if someone wants to sign up for Podia and pay the whatever it is for a monthly plan, is that same code used for when someone signs up for one of your customers' courses? Uh, no, it is It is quite different code. Um, con, you know, conceptually, it's the same, but we need to do things uh, and store information that we may not store for our subscriptions. And also, you know, it's a different set of webhooks, uh, things like that. So it's it's pretty much two separate parts of the app. Right. So with the payment stuff, you know, you mentioned customers, they just hook up their own Stripe keys or I guess PayPal keys as well, if that's necessary. But, you know, when you're a course creator, uh, suddenly you're, you're on the hook for keeping track of taxes and all these transactions. And it can get a bit tricky when you have to deal with, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of individual transactions. Have you ever thought about, or is this maybe a feature that, you know, because I'm not a creator on your platform, can people get set up to where you actually just pay them once per month instead of like handling every individual transaction? Uh, So the way it works is we actually, 
from a very high level, like we actually don't see your money uh, because we're using Stripe Connect. So you connect your Stripe account and you're in control. Like when you get paid, it just goes to you and your Stripe account. And then Stripe handles kind of the payouts, things like that from there. Okay. Now going back to that gem file, is there anything in there, you know, other than payments that could be interesting to talk about here? Yeah, I mean, I I would be a fool if I didn't talk about how much I love Sidekick. Um, we're heavy adopters of Sidekick, the background processing gem for Ruby, the Ruby ecosystem, but specifically Rails. Recently started using Sidekick Enterprise. So historically, we use Sidekick with Rails as active job, which is a wrapper around you know doing background jobs. Recently, since we switched to Sidekick Enterprise, we have had to start building some jobs that don't use the active job API. They actually need to be just pure sidekick jobs. Uh, the reason for that is some of the features just aren't supported through active job. Uh, one of those we use is batching. So now we can batch up together several background jobs and run them as like a, a single unit and keep track of the batch. And that's been, that's actually been a, a big win for us. Um, so sidekicks one, uh, another one we use, uh, we use Flipper, which is a gem for doing feature flags in Rails. And that's actually kind of pretty clutch to us because, you know, it allows us to deliver features to production without giving them to everyone. We can turn them on for a subset of users and kind of test them out in production. And that's been a really good gem that I enjoy using. Yeah, that's a great idea. Uh, do you have this bucketed off to where it's like a, a random set of users or do people have the ability to like opt into beta features like GitHub, I guess? Uh, yeah, so we control it right now. Um, and mostly mostly we use it for kind of internal testing, like letting Podia team try it out. Um, recently, we launched uh, a, I don't know the right term, we rebuilt our site editor and we kind of dripped that out. We had uh, like a beta program and for that, we'd add like 10, 20 people, 100 people at a time and kind of slowly give access. And that's, we use Flipper for that. And that was great. Cool. So is Flipper, does it use something like a database in the back end where you can just, you know, turn something on or off without restarting the app? Or is it more configuration based where you do need to do like a hard reload on the app? Uh, so you actually both. <laughs> um, so in the app, you know, you'll define, is this enabled for X? Um, and it uses Redis to know like what feature flags are turned on and for what groups or what actors is what they call them. So um, Redis is what stores like the actual like kind of source of truth of who has access and then the you know the code base defines what is limited and what's not. Right. Isn't it funny how like amazingly useful those feature flags are? I remember when I first started using them, it's like, man, the confidence level just goes so high. So, cause you know, you can just turn something off like immediately if you have to. Totally. Yeah. It's great. And you know, it allows for kind of faster feedback cycles. Like we have review apps. There's something about being able to put in production and let, you know, let stakeholders and, you know, other people use it in their like kind of normal environment, not some staging environment with old data. It's, it's great. Right. So I guess in the end, uh, you're not really getting woken up too much in the middle of the night for bugs in the code. Uh, you know, knock on wood, not too bad. So, uh, no, one other gym that I just thought of that I would mention. So we use RSpec for our testing and we use a gym uh, called Knapsack Pro, which allows us to basically run our test in parallel on CI. So we use Heroku CI to run our, our specs 
and we run them currently across 16 dynos and that's possible just by this gym. Now we actually, we pay to use this gym um, because what it does is it will like kind of scan the whole test suite. And then as the test finishes, like in a dyno, so if it's like dyno number three just finished a test, it asks for the next available test. And Knapsack is the one that handles all that. It kind of like dishes out different specs to different dynos so that it's not like trying to divide them up. And one finishes in 30 seconds and another one takes five minutes. Uh, it's actually, you know, trying to optimize for that. And that's been a big win for us because that's improved our test times by tremendous amounts, almost three or four X. Oh, wow. So what's the, uh, the average test run now with that enabled? Uh, so for Heroku, uh, CI, it takes about a minute and some change to actually spin up the dyno. And then, so, you know, it does that in parallel for 16 dynos. So then it takes about two to three minutes on average. Uh, so you end up with total about three to four minutes to run the whole suite. Well, that's really not too bad at all. Cause I would imagine a site like yours probably has a lot of tests. Yeah, we have quite a few tests. Um, let me actually run a real stats real quick on the code base. Yeah. Cause I don't know. I love the idea of creating something that other people can use to then sell for other people as well. It, it just seems like it would be a very stressful thing. Like there's a whole another no level of confidence that you need in your code base to have that happen. Yeah, totally. Our, our code to test ratio is one to 1.5. We have lots of specs, um, lots of model and controller specs. We've recently gotten into some system testing, but, and we, we do now we do JavaScript testing. Um, so yeah, it's, it's important to us to have specs. And also for the devs, it's important that they don't take forever to run. So it, it's kind of a, a balancing act. Right. So for local uh, tests that you run, you know, if you just run tests for, I don't know, like one controller or something like that, is it just a couple of seconds that you have to wait? Yeah, it's not bad if you're just running it for one. Now, if you run the whole suite, not in parallel locally, I haven't done that in a while, so I don't know. Um, I also put a gym parallel test in, which does the same thing just locally. It will divide it up based on the number of cores you have on your machine and I have a, I have an iMac Pro, and so it has eight cores, so it runs 16 like different parallelized tests. And I can run the whole suite in about mm, uh, 90 seconds, 120 seconds locally, but I, I typically prefer just to run, like you said, like a controller spec, like only t like run the test for what I'm working on and then let CI run the whole thing for me. Right. Now, going back to those stats that you have generated there, do you mind going over, like, not in super detail, but maybe, like, roughly how many lines of code did it take to develop this platform? Not that it really matters, right, because lines of code is not the best metric, but it's always interesting to get, like, a, you know, a high-level overview. Yeah, sure. So, um, running this uh, rail stats, it's telling me we have 38,000 lines of code and 56,000 test lines of code for test. Yeah, it's so crazy. Like you built this whole entire massive platform and there's so many features that we didn't even get a chance to talk about yet. Like you have like an affiliate system and there's so many things that are, I would imagine going behind the scenes, like, you know, 40K lines of code is not that much, right? Yeah, being the all-in-one platform for creators, like it is it is a lot of different things. You know, we, we handle email marketing, we do messaging, we do memberships, we do coupons for your products. We do, if you sell courses, we allow you to do like cohorts. Um, we allow you to drip out content. I mean, there's just all kinds of features and kind of going back to w when we first started, like this is the reason we use Rails um, because our team is pretty confident that it allows us to ship these kind of things quickly um, because we all have a 
good understanding of rails and it, there's a lot to it. Yeah, for sure. Now going back to maybe features of your platform and how they were implemented, you know, you mentioned doing some batching with sidekick. Do you want to go over maybe some actual examples from your app where you're using that feature? Sure. Yeah. So when you publish a, your site, so maybe you've used our site editor and made some changes and you want to publish all the changes you've made. Uh, what we do is we actually batch up all of the pages that have changed into one batch and we throw that in a sidekick. And so what we do is we start publishing your site and then once that batch is done, we actually have a uh, action cable response that will broadcast back to the editor and tell you that it's done and let you know that you can start viewing your site again. And that's that's one of the first things I did with batching. It's It's been nice because before... If you had a lot of changes, it would be hard, you know, to throw that just into a regular like request response time. Um, but putting it in the background and putting it in a batch, like it allows us to actually, you know, see it see it in Sidekick as the site publishing like its progress, and then pretty confidently, you know, using Action Cable, come back and say, yeah, it's done. So that's been a really nice feature for us. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because I was thinking like, well. Wouldn't it just be like a published enum or something that's like either draft or, or whatever? But I guess when you're publishing a lot of things, that will take a lot of time in the request response cycle, right? Yeah. And, you know, for the average case, it it's not too bad, you know. Um, but if you edit just a massive amount of pages, like we're, we're not guaranteed that uh, even in our most optimized code that that can finish in the before timing out because of Heroku, uh, Heroku's limit. So it's a pre-optimization probably for the, the most average of sites, but for the, the larger ones that make a lot of changes, it it helps them as well. So, Right. So now speaking of uh, Psychic, I would imagine it's probably quite the workhorse, right? Like you probably have more workers than actual web servers or no? Uh, let's see here. No, actually, so we actually do auto-scaling for both Sidekick and Rails. Uh, we use the Rails, uh, what's it called? Rails auto-scale. It's a product we use and... We probably, on average, only have one to two workers running. We have we have several queues inside, you know, a worker. But we we typically, in terms of like our web servers, we run on average three to four dynos, and we scale up at our max like six or seven. Okay, yeah, we'll definitely get into the stats of those in a second here. Uh, but before we get into that one, you know, you kind of mentioned this is traditional Rails app, right? It's a monolithic app. All of your developers work on that monolith. Front end, back end, it's all good. Uh, but we didn't really get a chance to talk about uh, maybe some JavaScript you might be using on the front end. So do you happen to use Stimulus or something else? Or Yeah, this Rails app started 2015. So 2016, it's originally using the asset pipeline and mostly just using kind of one-off JavaScript files um, and jQuery. I think it was before I got there, they'd started using Webpacker and moving towards Stimulus. And so now we're pretty much all in on Stimulus. The majority of our JavaScript is, as DHH says, JavaScript sprinkles. And so, you know, outside of the some of the React components we have, it's mostly just Stimulus for us. Right. And yeah, that DHH quote is like one of the best. I've been following him for quite some time now, and that one always sticks with me too. Yeah, it's, it's good. Such a perfect little phrase for such a thing. <laughs> Absolutely. So what was your experience like dealing with Webpacker? Because I know it's kind of like a, a lot of people either love it or hate it. So Webpacker itself is to me like the best possible version of Webpack because, you know, a team of 
people, open source contributors have taken the time to make an abstraction around Webpack, something that if I would take the time, I could understand more, but I just haven't. You know, personally, I was in a spot where I wanted to start using things like importing libraries uh, from NPM and using ES6, things like that, which were difficult in the asset pipeline because, you know, you didn't have build tools or you did, but they weren't real common, like a Babel or something like that. And so my experience with Webpacker has mostly been good. Um, we've grown quite a bit, you know, in terms of code. There's some things we have learned and still need to adjust about our Webpacker setup, you know, because we have different parts of our app. Like we, we have a CMS, we have a storefront, like, and we're trying to kind of like isolate those packs. But at the same time now we're like reusing code in both packs. So there's definitely some things, you know, we could optimize there, but Recently, a thing, we had DHH on the Remote Ruby podcast a few months back, and he was kind of talking about, I think it was like ESM modules or using something called uh, Skypack and Snowpack. I get them a little mixed up, but um, basically it was an idea that like, what if what if we don't need bundlers kind of thing? Or yeah, it's a real interesting concept, something that I don't think we'd be able to do at Podia like tomorrow kind of thing, because we have... We have a lot of JavaScript, but it's interesting, and it's something I'm keeping my eye on for the future. If there is a a a world that uh, is maybe without Webpack, I'm I'm just curious to see what it looks like. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm basically in the same position. Like using Webpacker, not the happiest, but it's not terrible. But would definitely love not to use it if I could somehow. Yeah, and and it's tough because like Webpack was a tool that enabled me to do a lot of things that I couldn't do before. I mean, it's just a pretty complex tool in my opinion and trying to be like the software generalist, I guess, you know, like trying to do all parts of the stack. It's hard for me to keep up with all of the Webpack configs and things like that. And so uh, that's why, you know, that's why Webpacker is so great. I let someone else handle that for me. Uh, so, yeah. Right. So speaking of being a full stack developer and kind of touching all aspects of the code base, do you find yourself just jumping around wherever you needed or do you just focus on one area? Yeah, we, we kind of jump around um, the whole app. Uh, I've been there, it'll be three years in May. And so I feel like I've touched most every part of the app. But like for me, like the past year, I've mostly been focusing on our site editor because we've rebuilt it and now we're like adding new features. Uh, well, once every n number of developers uh, a week, you have a dev rotation. So every currently seven weeks where you will work on bugs um, or help support or things like that. And that's actually my week this week. And that really helps you see a lot of parts of the app because, you know, if somebody's having an issue, you can go dig into that issue and learn a little bit more about the code base. And that's actually been really helpful for things like that. Yeah, that's a super, super nice concept. I think, didn't Basecamp mention doing that as well? Like their devs would just be on support rotation once in a while? I, I've heard them talk about that. I don't know the frequency, but um, I think, and I think the, thing about Basecamp, they actually, their developers will like actually get in the support queues and things like that. And I, I would say, fortunately for me, uh, we, we don't have to actually like get into the queue. Um, we have a really phenomenal support team. Uh, they're really good about being able to communicate any issues people are having. And um, yeah, we've been real fortunate. Nice. So for that site editor, is this then some form of like a WYSIWYG editor or a code editor or somewhere in between? Um, somewhere in between. So basically the way it works is, 
you know, by default you have a home page, and every time you add a course, we generate a page for that course. And so, uh, in the example of like the home page, it a home page has like page sections, and you can add or remove page sections. So, in its simplest of page sections, like a text page section, which has like a title and a rich text area. Or we have like a products page section, which will let you like pick and choose what products you want to show in this page section. And then like things like newsletter signups, like bio page sections, um, video. Uh, if you have categories, like for your products, you have a categories page section. So inside of, you know, each one of those, there's different things like text or you want to change the layout, the look, things like that. Um, so it's, it's kind of kind of WYSIWYG, but also kind of a controlled experience, if you will. Okay. And then for that text areas and stuff, is that using tricks like the rich text editor? It is. It's using tricks. Uh, currently, um, I could see us maybe migrating to something else in the future, but we've been using tricks since I've been there and we still just, anytime we need rich text, that's just what we reach for. Right. And then for assets that customers might upload, like screenshots or whatever, is that all just using active storage? It is. We previously used Carrier Wave, and we still obviously have uh, a lot of Carrier Wave around the app, but we've been migrating to Active Storage. I think, I want to say maybe our site editor, our original version, was the first thing that used Active Storage, and we've been kind of doubling down on it. We've, it's like, like any tool, it's not perfect, but it really fits into like the Rails way of thinking pretty well. It's nice having, so with Active Storage, like you have database records. So the attachment on the model is actually like a join record to a blob where the blob is a database record that represents the file. And, you know, you can actually have one representation of a file and attach it to multiple records. Um, so, yeah, we've been, we've been using Active Storage um, a lot more recently. And we recently built a, uh, a new uploader for files and it's using active storage and we've been, I mean, we've just been really happy with it. Oh, nice. So before we talk about that uploader, uh, just on active storage. Yeah. So on the platform, I remember when I was watching a course, you know, you have that table of contents on the left where you have like sections and lessons. And then I, f I found like a zip file associated to one of those lessons. So I guess that's where you could do something like, like lesson dot attachments or whatever with uh, your active storage setup. Yeah. And that would be an example of that. I think those are probably, still using carrier wave or migrating those into active storage. But yeah, those are, those are the type of files that we're uploading. Yep. Nice. And that, that new uploader that you created, do you want to go over, you know, the pain points of what you had before and what this new solution does and how it solves those problems? Yeah. So I wasn't actually super involved in the uploader, um, but as a consumer of it, I love it. A couple, so we have a product designer who designed it. Um, and one of my coworkers, Basil and, uh, Kyle worked on it and they, our pain point before was that like in our editor, we used file ponds, but it didn't really match any of the other like uploaders we had because like some were using like a drag and drop thing we built in the asset pipeline. Some were just using like click to choose file kind of thing, like using like the bootstrap custom upload option. And so we didn't really kind of have a unified uploader. And so what we've done is we've built one using actually using React. Um, that was one of the use cases we thought would be good. And we have a single file uploader. We have a multi-file uploader. And we have a couple of different backends for it. 
um, so one of which is like our active storage backend, and then another one is Wistia because videos on our platform are hosted on Wistia. It's been nice. We wrapped it in a Rails form builder. So now when we're using Rails forms, we can be like form dot single file uploader, and it just inserts the React component for us and knows how to like hook it to the Rails form. It's it's really nice and. It's it's been a big win uh, for me, especially. So yeah, no, it sounds uh, like it's very nice to use. Cause I, I don't know why it's 2021 here, but it's still so hard to deal with file uploads for some reason. I don't know why there's not this perfect solution yet. It is so hard. I was working on a side project the other day, and I was like, man, I wish I just had this uploader that like was handcrafted at Podia. I used uh, I used Uppy for this side project, but. I still needed like that. That only handled the actual like choosing and uploading of files. I still needed like a good way to actually display them on the form and like remove them and move them around. And yeah, I feel that same pain. Like, how is this not a solved problem? Like, I just want to drag stuff in there and just get everything back perfectly, like progress bars and everything. Totally, I'm with you. Now, speaking of that though, I mean, you can sort of cut corners uploading something like a user's avatar, right? Like some tiny picture, but. If you're dealing with videos that you need to send over to Wistia, I mean, those videos can be pretty big and there, there could be potentially hundreds of those videos just in one course. So how do you have things set up now? Can can a user, a creator of a course go in there and just like bulk upload 25 uh, MP4 files or whatever? Yeah, so we do them, you know, asynchronously and they're, I believe they're using like the direct upload capability of active storage. Um, so in our download editor, our digital download editor, we do allow multiple file uploads and we just track the progress of each of them. And as they finish, they pop off the uploading stack onto the uploaded stack. So yeah, we, we support multiple file uploads. Nice. Cause yeah, that's definitely a big win when you have a big course with a lot of files. Yeah, absolutely. I, I recently uploaded like 50 some odd videos for my Simulus Reflex course and I really could have used the, the multiple file uploader at that time. Yeah, because it's kind of like just rendering videos. Like for me, it's like, okay, I'm just going to go to sleep now, render 100 videos, and when I wake up, probably gonna, going to be done. So it's kind of cool to have that same ability for file uploads as well. Yeah, it's it's great. It's, uh, it, it's a little more manual process because you got to think about, like in terms of development, you got to think about all the edge cases, but the team of people who worked on it were really thoughtful and were really so far been able to benefit from it. Right. Now, speaking of Wistia and videos, did you compare that to Vimeo or other providers? Like what made you choose Wistia in the end, if you happen to know? Uh, so that was the Wistia decision was before my time. So I can't speak to that. So going back to your tech stack, you know, you mentioned using Redis, Sidekick, Rails, you have Action Cable going on. Uh, safe to say using Postgres as your main database? We are. We are using Postgres. Okay. Any other databases going on, like Elasticsearch or something else? No, just using uh, Redis and Postgres. Yeah, that's it. Okay. For other things, maybe in your tech stack, do you happen to use Docker in development or no? We don't. Um, I I floated that idea because the last company I was at was using Docker. Um, but we we as a team, we haven't adopted it. We mostly just have our local environment set up to run and we, we each maintain those and it, it's worked okay so far. So we just, we keep doing that. And since we host on Heroku, we have a really good pipeline set up. So it Docker for deployment has not been an issue for us either. So like needing Docker for deployment. Right. Now you mentioned, you know, your dev team is, is growing, not maybe by the day, but definitely adding new members once in a while. What does the spin up time look like to get a new dev on board to, I guess they get what, a clean laptop or computer from the company. And then, you know, how do they get everything installed? 
Yeah, it's a good question. So we recently just started a uh, a I can't remember the term for it, but yeah, we basically started buying computers now um, for new employees, and we have a script that someone wrote that will actually like use Homebrew and set up the system for you. Other than that, if you want to do it manually, we have a README. I um, mean, it it really is just kind of the standard like Rails setup. Like you need to make sure you have Redis installed. You know, no preference on how you do that. Same thing with Postgres. Uh, need to have the right Ruby version. It's not maybe the answer you're looking for because I've been with Podia for a while, but like I just reset up my laptop and it took me like 20 minutes to spin up everything. So it wasn't too bad. Nice. No, that's actually a perfect answer because it gives some context and hey, you know, we're not using Docker, but still able to get everything set up in, you know, let's say half an hour. Yeah. And, and you know, like maybe if it's your first time, like there's some gotchas. Um, like we use Chamber uh, for secrets. Um, and so, you know, you got to make sure you have the the key for that and all that installed. But if you know where kind of all the little things you got to do, it doesn't take too much time to get rolling. Right. By the way, just to switch gears a little bit about uh, certain things like your customers being able to integrate domain names into the platform. Like, can you link a custom domain name set up to your Podia account? Yes, you can. Um, so that, that is the thing I should know more about. I can, I can kind of give you a high level, uh, like 30,000 feet overview of it. We run a caddy server for our custom domains. Uh, it's and the caddy server is like a proxy for that. And so when you add a domain, we have a whole process that will provision it on that server and then start redirecting traffic accordingly. Right. I would imagine there's a lot of uh, SSL certificate generation going on behind the scenes there. There is. Uh, we're using Let's Encrypt and. It's doing its magic. Um, we have a couple of devs. We have one, Andrea, who she set up our... We we recently kind of migrated to Caddy. I say recent, like a, a year and a half ago, two years. Before that, we were running just like an Nginx server that kind of stood as a proxy. Um, and now that we've been running Caddy, like she built a whole like DevOps system around it. It's really slick. Um, but yeah, so it it just it kind of works. And it's uh, for me, it's kind of magic. Right. It's one of those things like happy it exists, uh, happy to use it, but maybe don't want to touch it, but it works. Yeah. Like let me know when I'm on support rotation, like how I can fix it. Um, but otherwise, thank you. Thank you for your service. Right. So you mentioned kind of everyone is sort of just, you know, doing whatever they can do around to get stuff done. Do you have any dedicated apps folks or no? We don't. Um, we all pitch in uh, to Heroku um, in terms of if something goes wrong, but we, we don't have any ops people per se. We have... Uh, Andrea, who set up our custom domain proxy, she's probably the, her and our CTO are probably the closest to like DevOps folks we have. Okay. So maybe now just to talk a little bit more about maybe what services you might use, you know, you mentioned Wistia for videos. Uh, do you happen to know what email service you use for sending out transactional emails? Yeah. So for transactional emails, we're using Postmark. And for our marketing emails that like our customers send, we use Spark Post to handle those. Very cool. Yeah, I haven't heard of SparkPost before. Do you want to give us the rundown and what it allows you to do and why it's different than the others? Yeah, so the reason for SparkPost is that we send, we allow our creators to send emails to, you know, say, hey, I launched a new course or like weekly emails like, hey, this is my newsletter. And SparkPost allows us to do that. Um, something like Postmark or even send, I think SendGrid, oh, but for Postmark at least, they kind of limit to transactional. So like from the service, like, Hey, go reset your password or thanks for signing up. Like things that are related to the actual like purchasing or sign up process. And so Spark Post 
allows us to do more than that for our creators. Right. Yeah, that makes total sense because very big difference between sending a password reset versus like sending 8,000 emails out. Right. And it's like, it's more, I guess the word, I'm like, it's more ambiguous, right? Like, uh, you know, a password reset, you're, you're not going to like probably spam. Um, but like people, people do all kinds of things when they get emails. Like the people are very like, yeah, I'll just, this is spam. I don't want this when they like signed up for it and stuff like that, that can affect send rates. So that's why we keep them separate. So by the way, before we move on to the hosting setup, uh, you know, you mentioned you are using Postgres. Do you happen to use any interesting Postgres features like full text search or something else? Actually, that's a good question. Uh, not really. <laughs> we, I mean, we do some common table expressions, which isn't really specific to Postgres, but outside of that, um, we do some Postgres. We do some Postgres full text search um, for our searching because we don't use anything like Elasticsearch or anything like that. But outside of that, it's kind of just vanilla Postgres SQL. Okay, so like that full text search is that more for the creators backend to search through people who signed up or whatever? Yeah, we use the PG search gym. Um, and I would say even we probably use it even more in like our own admin than actually the like creator admin. Ooh, yeah, that could be fun to talk about. So it's like we have the, you know, the idea of a creator is technically like an admin of their own platform, but then you have you who is like a super admin because you own like the Podia system. Uh, do you want to go over how that was developed a bit? Yeah, so um, it, you know, it was one of those pre existing things. Uh, that predated me, but you know, I, I've continued to work on it as well. Um, so when creators write into support, they need, you know, they need help with certain things. Um, over time, like the more developers have to get involved, we see things like, Oh, like we could enable support to do this. And so our like super admin platform allows support to be able to kind of not have to rely on a developer for everything. Um, and it's, it's not like the prettiest thing. Um, it's, you know, we, we threw some bootstrap in there and it's a lot, a lot of tables and a lot of forms, but, um, it's, it's been a really nice, uh, a really nice platform for support and, and for us when we need to troubleshoot issues, things like that. Yeah. Definitely a little bit more friendly than just opening up a PSQL prompt and start writing queries. <laughs> Absolutely. And we, we actually do run Metabase, which is an open source, like, UI uh, for, you know, your data. So we have a follower database on our production one, so it doesn't have any write access, so we can't, like, go in there and write a SQL query and screw everything up. Um, but it's been, I use it almost daily just to write a SQL query or two if, like, someone's having a problem or I want to know, like, what data looks like. And it is, it is really clutch. I love Metabase. Nice. Yeah, I have not used that one firsthand, but I will check it out. Now, for those queries that you run once in a while, do you then go back and like maybe implement those into your custom admin backend when you get some spare time? Um, sometimes um, we actually give support access to Metabase because we can like save queries and things like that. So we can link them to a query. And with Metabase, you can use variables so they can actually like take a query and like change an ID or something and then get the data they need. And that's, you know, that's enabled us to not have to always move it over to admin kind of keeps it a little more dynamic and easier to change on the fly as well. Yeah. It sounds almost like you're able to create technically like a web form, but not needing to be a form. You can just pop in some variables. Totally. Yep. 
Very cool. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about how all of this is hosted. So you you know you mentioned you are using Heroku here, and uh, spoiler alert before the call, you know we can't go into specifics about like hosting costs and stuff. But do you want to give a breakdown, maybe of like the number of servers and workers that you're using, if you can? Yeah. So we, I think on average we just run one worker um, for our background processing. We use Rails Auto Scale, and it can scale up. I don't remember what the the limit is, but it doesn't usually go above two or three workers at a time. So this is sort of embarrassing, by the way, but don't use Heroku that much. Like, what is this Rails autoscaler you're talking about? Yeah, uh, that's actually a, a great question. So there, it's a, it's a third-party product, um, and you can install it through the Heroku add-ons. And basically, what it'll do is allow you to look at... Um, it's not... I think it's queue time, and if it reaches a certain threshold then it will, you know, spin up another dyno and start, you know, splitting traffic between them. Uh, so it works for the workers and for our actual web dynos. Uh, very cool. So yeah, it's like an AWS's auto-scaling group or whatever, like just spins up things based on some criteria being met. Right. And it's different from the Heroku, like Heroku has an auto-scaler, but if I'm not mistaken, it looks at response time maybe, uh, where this is actually looking at like how long it's taking to get the request somewhere, so the queue time, and that's been a little more beneficial for us. Yeah, that seems like a very important uh, difference, right? Because when response times are getting high, it's like the problem's already happening, and it would be nice to solve it before the problem happens. Right, yeah, and especially because, you know, it takes, it's it's not the quickest thing for us to spin up a dyno. Um, I mean, it's not slow, but it's not like, snap my fingers, there's a dyno, so it is nice to be a little bit ahead of everything. Yeah, for sure. Because even like a minute or two spin up time, like that is a really long time if your site is down or just unresponsive. Yeah, we've had really good success with this. Um, we started using it around the holiday sales around Thanksgiving, and we, you know, we had no, we had no traffic problems, any scaling problems, um, and it's been really good for us. We've continued to keep using it. Yeah, and for anyone who's not really into sales, like the Black Friday weekend is usually like. Probably the busiest time of the year for any sales creator. And it's interesting, like, you're on the hook to keep, you know, everyone's customers working well. How was that overall? Like, was everyone up, like, 20 hours a day sweating it, or it was pretty smooth? It was pretty smooth. I, I actually took off Black Friday. <laughs> um, we we haven't really had problems historically, but we've always been, like, we always keep an eye on it because it is just such a crazy time of the year. Um, but this year with Autoscaler, like, I put the Autoscale into a Slack channel, so it would tell me when it was going up and down. And yeah, we had we had no problems. It was pretty smooth. We were really fortunate this year. Nice. So that autoscaler, like we were able to see every time it kicked in and just added a new dyno? Yep. And every time, uh, every time it was like, okay, it's time for me to start downgrading. It told us all that. Nice. So what was the variance like during that weekend or maybe Thursday or Friday, whatever? Was it just like creating, you know, I think you mentioned what, like six or eight of them and then it just came down when it needed? Yeah, we, I think, we historically have just run four. We run four Performance L web dynos, and that's like our minimum. And then we will scale up to a maximum of eight. But I don't think we even got as high as eight. I think six, maybe seven was the highest. But that was that could have also been if you deploy, it will spin up and scale up because during deployment the queue time goes high. So, right. And speaking of deployments, by the way, like. End to end from you committing code, uh, how long does it take before the actual thing is live in production? So once you merge into main, we run Heroku specs on main. 
Once those pass, so this is all automated. Once those pass, we build our staging app, and this is in Heroku, so we're using Heroku pipelines. The, once the app is done building and released, there's a manual process to click promote to production, and that will release the slug so it doesn't have to actually rebuild the dyno to release. That takes roughly about 20 minutes to get there. The thing that adds to that is we use pre-boot. So we'll actually boot up the new dynos in the background. And once they're loaded, then we'll take them live. So there's not that, like, if you hard restop, like a Rails app on, hard restart a Rails app on Heroku, it takes, like, you know, a little while for it to spin back up. So your site starts timing out while it's, you know, spinning up the new dyno. And we avoid that by using this pre-boot system. So that adds another five to 10 minutes onto it. Okay. So that's another five or 10 on top of the 20. Yeah. So I guess end to end, it's probably about 20, 30 minutes total. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's not that bad in, in the grand scheme of things, especially if the solution in the end gives you basically zero downtime deploys, right? Right. And, you know, it requires the main specs to pass and, you know, it, we're pretty, we feel mostly confident in that system and can't ask for much more than that. Yeah, for sure. Because I mean, I would imagine anyone listening to this show, like it's not easy to, de- to deploy a web application, right? Especially if you're dealing with background workers. And like you mentioned before, keeping two apps up at the same time, like there's so many little things that you need to keep track of. Yeah. And, you know, we, we run database migrations. Um, we started using a tool called Data Migrate so we can actually run data migrations at deploy time. Uh, so if like we need to update some old data or backfill data, it's it's a separate thing we run as well. And you know, all that's automated through Heroku during deploy. So, Very cool. So I guess to be clear then, that means your regular migrations are just dealing with changes to your database schema, like, you know, adding a new column or whatever, but actually migrating data now, is that a separate step? Yes. Yeah. It, well, it is a separate step, um, but the gym, we use a gym for it and it actually, so it gives you a rake task. It's rake db migrate with data. So when you create a data migration, it has the same kind of Rails structure of a database migration where it has a timestamp. And this gem, like when you run that rate task, it runs them side by side in order. So like if I have a database migration from two days ago, a data migration yesterday, and a database migration today, it's going to go two days ago database migration, one day ago data migration, today database migration. So it does it like in order together. Um, but it's kind of like a separation of concerns, right? Like for our data migrations, we may be writing some like Rails active record update alls. I write a lot of SQL in those data migrations. Um, and so it just kind of gives us a way to not move those into the database migrations. Right. Yeah, no, that's a very good idea. I forgot where I read that tip, but it wasn't that long ago, maybe like two or three months ago where, yeah, it seems like it's a very good idea to separate those things. We started using it because I botched a side project really bad on some data one time. And I was like, hey, I found this. I think it might be beneficial. And it's been, you know, for the most part, it's been just another nice addition to the app. Right. Now, speaking of database migrations, isn't there another Rails gem out there? Like one that tries to protect you from making a specific type of database migration that could cause downtime, just rename a column or something like that. Do you happen to use that gem or know what I'm talking about? We do. It's called Strong Migrations. Yes. And we do use that. Um, and it's it's very good. <laughs> it's also a pain because you're like, I just want to rename a column, but it protects you from like making a substantial mistake that you might not know about. Okay, for example, if I want to add a column and I want to give it a default value, 
it, if I just use the Rails, like, add column, here's my table name, here's the column name, default is, we'll say it's a Boolean, default is false. Well, it's going to say you need to do this in separate steps. The first thing you need to do is add the column uh, without the default. The next thing you need to do is change, use a, a Rails method called change column default and change it from nil to false. Then in a separate process, like either another migration, in our case, it'd be a data migration. That's when you'd go backfill all the old records. So like what is a one-step process becomes a three-step process. But the reason is it's trying to prevent you from locking that table, like a huge table trying to just add this column and change the default. So it's it's fascinating and I'm I'm really grateful we use it. Yeah, no, it's a very, very good thing to have. Like, yeah, if I'm not writing Rails applications, I miss that thing. Because it's so easy to shoot yourself in the foot and do something that lacks a table. Yeah, that's like, if there was an award for it, I'd have a room full of them. So Right. So speaking of like, you know, maybe gems like that, are there any other ones that just save you from doing bad things? Like maybe using bullet for like N plus one queries or something like that? Uh, we haven't been using bullet, but we did recently start using one I want to mention. Yeah, it's a little bit different from strong migrations, but... Just last week, there was a licensing issue with the Mime Magic gem, and it got yanked for Ruby gems and stopped everyone from installing Rails applications. And that put us on a deploy freeze for a day or so. And so we added a gem uh, to our library. It's actually a platform, uh, but it's called Diffend, D-I-F-F-E-N-D. And what it'll do is actually scan your gems uh, and let you know if there's kind of any issues with them, a quality score, uh, anything that should be denied, things like that. Um, and it has a UI for it. It's just kind of, I don't know, it's a nice way to kind of audit your gem file. Uh, and we just started using that and I really like it. Very cool. So is that like a brand new gem that was released because of this or it's been around for a while? Because I haven't heard about that one. It looks like it's been around for a while. Um, on their website, they've done like 24 million package checks, uh, which would be impressive for just a couple of weeks. But no, I saw someone tweet that uh, they knew about like my magic being pulled because Diffend alerted them uh, in advance. Nice. Because yeah, I got bit by that one as well. Like some of my CI builds just stopped building because that gem wasn't available anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah. Considering our CI has to pass like before we can deploy, it was like, well, I guess we're just going to work on new features. I don't know. Right. Now, speaking of that, the like unexpected events and disasters, do you have any way to deploy your app without going through that CI pipeline just as like a fail, like not a fail safe, but like, yeah, I guess just getting around the system? We could uh, with Heroku. We, I mean, we could deploy straight to the production app if we needed to, but that's not something I don't think I've actually done since I've been at Podia. Uh, we've mostly just been able to go through the pipeline process. Nice. And I guess before we get, we get into like other disaster stuff, like database backups, when it comes to that Heroku setup, are you doing everything through their web UI or do you have some like automated tool like Terraform where you can just provision all the workers and other resources that you need? Uh, we use mostly the web UI. We also, I mean, we use the CLI, but not in any like scripted way or anything like that. Okay. And by the way, I forgot to ask this one, but for Heroku, are you using any type of add-ons besides like, you know, Postgres and Redis? Uh, so the Rails Autoscaler is technically a Heroku add-on. We are also using the Heroku Scheduler. So we have some rate tasks that we want to run, basically like cron jobs almost, um, but they need to run on 
Heroku scheduler gives you like every 10 minutes on the 30 minute mark on the hour mark kind of thing. We use that. Um, and then besides that, I mean, we provision Redis and such through Postgres as an add on. Okay. That's interesting that you brought that up about the crown job. So then I guess you are not using the features of sidekick to do like reoccurring jobs at specific points in time. Uh, so we just upgraded to enterprise. Well, before that, like this may be a feature of pro, but like we just had the free sidekick. So we are actually in the process of trying to migrate our jobs into the sidekick scheduler. We haven't, we haven't had one person sit down and just do that. It just kind of happens here and there. So we'd like to move off the Heroku scheduler and just have sidekick do all of that for us. Right. And yeah, I think the free version does not have that behavior. Like you have to use some third party gem that's not officially maintained, but may exist. Right. And for that, we've tried to just like, we've tried to keep it to where like, if we wanted to reach out to the creator of sidekick for support, uh, we wouldn't have anything in the way, like a third party unsupported library that was breaking something. Yeah. That is cool to see though, that you are using the enterprise plan for that because yeah, there's a lot of great features in that. I don't know. It's not like the community has done bad things with their own implementations, but it's way nicer and way easier to sleep at night knowing you're using the official package. A hundred percent. And you know, on, on another level, like, you know, it's Podia paying for it, but like I personally, I'm like, I'm really glad we can support Mike and the work he's doing because you know, he runs a free version for the community. Uh, it's nice to be able to kind of, you know, help him out as well. Yeah, for sure. So like I came into Rails pretty late, like just Rails 4. I forget the exact year, but I remember, yeah, Sidekick is like, it's such a good tool. Like it's, whenever I'm working with a different framework, it's like, damn it, I just wish I had Sidekick. <laughs> yeah, and he's got a new library out called Factory. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it will allow you to run like, kind of like a sidekick-esque background system in other languages, Go and things like that. But I only really write Ruby, so I just keep using sidekick. So now maybe we can talk a little bit about disaster recovery. So I would imagine your customer's data is probably pretty important. <laughs> do you have like things hooked up for automated backups through Heroku or do you just like do SQL dumps to S3? Um, so I don't know if I'm actually, they want me to talk about this. Oh, because you don't back up your database, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, we do. I just don't know. Like some customers like want to know like all the specifics and we don't usually offer that publicly. Like we do, we use Heroku backups, things like that. And we schedule them and we have S3 backups, but I just don't know. I don't think, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't think they, I'd rather err on the side of caution, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's totally fair. But as for maybe other backups, like user files that are uploaded, like the videos and whatnot, is that just like redundant through Wistia where you don't need to worry about backing those up or no? Yeah, there are some, uh, there's some files we back up on S3 even before like we'll send to Wistia. Um, but we've not had any trouble hosting with Wistia either. Like we've not lost files from Wistia. So it's been, it's been fine. Right now I have not seen one of your customers landing pages for the courses, but are there things like video thumbnails, like images that you might be hosting yourself or no? Uh, so with Wistia, the way it works is we actually, for a custom thumbnail, we upload it to Wistia as like an, uh, an object, like some kind of media object and then attach it. Um, but we recently started uh, a thing in our site editor where we'll actually host a copy of that thumbnail too. Uh, so we'll send it to Wistia, but we'll also keep an active storage version of it uh, in the event we need it or something like that. Yeah, very cool. Because I would imagine, like, I don't know, maybe some landing pages, people might want to see thumbnails of all the videos they have. If you have, like, 100 videos, 100 thumbnails, like, that's 100 API calls. Like, I guess having that locally would be kind of nice. 
Yeah, and that's the reason um, we're starting to kind of migrate towards that. Just, you know, and two, it gives you, like, if we just post it to Wistia, there's not really a way to remove it. Um, so, like, we had to kind of build a system to where we'll keep a copy of it. And if you want to, like, if you delete our local copy, then we'll actually go and delete the copy on Wistia, where that wasn't possible without keeping a local copy of it, really, in, in any meaningful way, at least. Right. Now, speaking of like local copies and API calls, do you keep a lot of local Stripe stuff in your own databases to avoid API calls as well? We keep a fair amount. Yeah. Um, and it's nice because, you know, you can delegate that kind of stuff with like active record models. If we store some Stripe data, we, we can delegate to like a JSONB column or something. Um, there, there are times where we can't avoid uh, having to reach out to Stripe, but we do try and keep it at, at a minimum. Right. And by the way, speaking of Stripe, like if someone needs to issue a refund for someone who bought the cars of one of your creators, can they do all of that through your UI? Or do you like just say, hey, by the way, go to like this Stripe dashboard page for that? We offer it through our UI. Nice. Yeah. Because I mean, refunds happen, unfortunately, once in a while, but it is annoying when you have to go and do like eight steps to make the refund happen. Yeah, we offer it. Um, I don't think we support it through PayPal because of PayPal API, the version we're using, but for Stripe, we, we integrate pretty tightly, but also, you know, we listen for Stripe webhooks too. So if something happens to the Stripe dashboard, for the most part, we're, we're listening for that as well. Oh yeah. That's uh, very nice to have for sure. Definitely don't want to have out of sync data. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, sometimes it happens and you know, we're, it's pretty easy for us to rectify that, but we try to just stay in sync as much as possible. Right. Now, speaking of these integrations, by the way, didn't get a chance to talk about that. Did you use your own home world code? Or do you happen to use that page gem that Chris created or no? Uh, we use a lot of just kind of home world code. Um, so I was with Chris when that gem started. And when it started, it was more of just like kind of subscription management. Um, and, you know, Podia's integration with Stripe is really deep. Uh, so pay wouldn't necessarily be a good fit um, for the whole use case of Podia and Stripe. So it's a lot of just, you know us syncing up with Stripe's API and, you know, building models and different data around that. So it's, it's a lot of custom code. So basically just using the official Ruby SDK from Stripe. Pretty much. Yeah. A including their JavaScript as well. Right. Yeah. Definitely don't want to have to write that yourself. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So uh, as for like disaster recovery stuff, I mean, you know, you mentioned using the Rails autoscaler to you know, avoid situations where things might start timing out. But do you have any like external checks happening on your actual like podia.com site, maybe through like Uptime Robot or Pingdom or something else? We do. We have uh, Uptime Robot monitoring some things for us. Um, we also recently started using Chronitor to monitor, you know, background jobs and services. It alerts us not only in Slack, but it also sends webhooks to Ops Genie which is what we use for like on-call management. And it will create an incident for us if something goes down. And then it notifies one of, who, what, well, it notifies the Slack channel no matter what. But the dev that's on call, uh, they'll get notified through Ops Genie. And we, we rotate our Ops rotation daily. So every other day, it's a new dev. So that's maybe more than you want to know. But that's, uh, that's kind of high level of how we handle those type of incidents. No, that's good stuff. So what did you mention? There was like seven or eight devs on your team? Yeah, I think we're at seven product devs and the CTO. So eight of us total. And then we're hiring. We have two more starting in the next month or two. Right. So every other day, eight developers, 16 days. So like every half a month, you end up being on call once, I guess. 
Yeah, so it's uh yeah, and right now our CTO, he's in Ireland, um and they're still in lockdown there, so he was like, I'll just take the weekend shifts and y'all can rotate the weekdays. So like it's you know, it won't last forever, but it's been it has been kind of nice cuz it's only like there were six uh, up until last week. And so it was like every six days I'm on call. It's not too bad. And it's only for 24 hours. So, right. Now, do you have any, maybe like war stories that you can share about like something went wrong, you were on call and you fixed it? Um, without burying your company under like a dumpster fire. <laughs> yeah, we had, um, we had a recent incident where our sidekick workers kept crashing. Our, the monitor we had on sidekick couldn't catch that that was happening because the queue was just at zero because the workers had crashed. Um, so it thought, Oh, everything's fine. Um, and it wasn't like a severe outage or anything. Luckily we caught it before it was an issue. We, we just had a memory leak happen, but it was like <laughs> logging in and like, so it kept spinning up workers like autoscaler did. And we were like four workers and they were all crashed. It was kind of like a panic moment. And then it was like, Oh, it's just this one thing has gone wrong. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, I mean, there's stories like that, um, but nothing, luckily nothing too major to share. Right. There was nothing ever catastrophic, I guess, like data loss or whatever. Uh, n- no, nothing that, uh, nothing that hasn't been recoverable. So Nice. Always good to see, especially with a company that's been around for what, half a decade now, at least. Yeah. Yeah. We're, I'm grateful. Nice. So what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building this app? Hmm. That is that is a good question. I maybe don't have any like specific tips, but some things that I think work well for us at Podia, we we're able to stay small. Um, I think also one big reason is because like we trust each other. We review code, we do the code review process, but it's not it's not an overtly formal thing. Like we we request reviews, and we have everyone gives very like good and empathetic feedback. And that helps foster trust between us all. And that helps us kind of have confidence in the code we ship. Um, and I think that's been really valuable to us. It's always good to hear you're not just getting like, hey, you're doing it wrong. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's time. Like, even when you, like, make major mistakes, like, the feedback you get is like, hey, I understand how maybe you ended up here. Um, but this isn't going to work. And it makes it it makes it nice. Yeah, so I guess I guess tip wise, like, you know, every most everything I've mentioned, like, that sounds really cool, is all been implemented by our CTO. But like having having good monitors for when things go wrong, having things like auto scaling, I don't know, things that just help us as developers kind of like focus on developing because we know like if something goes wrong, it'll be we can handle it. Or like we've put things in check so they don't go wrong. I don't know. There's anything you can do like that, especially on a small team, just really helps developers be able to like do what they're good at, which is develop. Right. So it sounds like maybe like just automate as much as you can around things going wrong or just automation in general, right? Yep. Cool. So Jason, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. So before I wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Sure, my GitHub's not real interesting, uh, and really, honestly, my Twitter's not. But if you want to reach out on Twitter, it's J M Charns C H A R N E S, and I'd be glad to say hello. Cool. I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running in Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show 
at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.